Now everybody's uh, ready. I want you to um, get your worksheet. And let me, before we get started, ask you to turn to uh, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. And I want to begin, actually, there. So that's just right close by the book of James. If you're here for the first time, on Sunday night, we work from a worksheet and a Bible study type um, format. And I think it's been uh, productive and helpful. I want to talk to you tonight about how to do right when you've been done wrong. And I think that I may be scratching where a lot of you itch because I don't know too many of us that don't if we haven't been done wrong, we sure think we have. We feel like we have. And so it's maybe uh, about the most applicable sermon that you can hear, how to do right when you've, done, when you've been done wrong. The most natural reaction when somebody has been done wrong is retaliation. It's do unto others as they have done unto you. Involved in it is revenge and holding grudges and feeling resentful. That's the most natural reaction. Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher, says that retaliation is the greatest human instinct. Bacon called retaliation a kind of, quote, wild justice. And Lord Byron labeled retaliation as sweetness. There are three levels of retaliation. To return in the place of good, evil, is animal-like. That's the dog that bites the hand that feeds it. It is the ingrate that injures the benefactor. To return in the place of good, evil. To return evil for evil and good for good is human-like. It's the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours philosophy. It's human-like. To return good for evil is God-like. For he sends rain upon the just as well as upon the unjust. Now, if you found 1 Peter chapter 2, verses, beginning at verse 18, I want to set the stage on how to do right if you've been done wrong by showing you an illustration of it. Beginning at verse 18. Servants, slaves, and at the time of this writing, there were millions of them, slaves. Slaves be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle. And it's easy to do that. That's human-like, returning good for good. But also to those who are unreasonable. That's God-like, returning good for evil. For this finds favor 
if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, it's not difficult to do right and be submissive to those who are good and gentle. But he's saying be submissive and do right to those who he calls unreasonable. The word in the Greek means, is, is the word overbearing. It means warped, literally. It means crooked. It means per, a person who is warped in his thinking and warped in his attitude. To these people who do you wrong, he says, be, re, be gentle and good and submissive. That's God's supernatural alternative. Did you notice that verse, verse 19 begins with this finds favor in the sight of God and it ends, verse 20, this finds favor in the sight of God. And that word means action that is beyond ordinary human response. Now this, watch this. What you and I are to do when we've been done wrong is that which is beyond the ordinary human response. Now, if it is the most natural thing to retaliate, to hold grudges, to feel resentful, to have revenge, when we've been done wrong, we are to do that which goes beyond the normal human response, that is, to be gentle and good and submissive to those who do us wrong. Now we're ready for James chapter 5. Beginning at verse 7 of James 5. I've been preaching through, as you know, the book of James, and we're at this passage. I hope you're finding it, beginning at verse 7. It's, it's James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's right at hand. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count these those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with another oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, if you've got your outline, some general observations. Number one, this passage is addressed to believers. 
four times in this passage, he uses the word brethren. It says two things to me. Number one, it says that believers are expected to respond Christ's way rather than to react the human way. Is it, is it unreasonable to expect a Christian to react differently when he's been done wrong? I don't think so. The Christian is expected to respond Christ's way rather than to react the human way. And secondly, believers will be wronged. Now I'd like to tell you tonight that because you are a believer, you are a Christian, that you'll never be mistreated, you'll never be done wrong, you'll never suffer unjustly or unjustly. But I cannot say that. Christians will be wronged. It was true in this day and it's true in ours. Secondly, these verses are related to the above passage which deals with the injustice that is done by the wealthy to those who are poor, the plutocrats, the wealthy. And he deals with that in that passage, the beginning part of this, uh, of, of this chapter, that the wealthy sometimes take advantage of the, of the unwealthy, of the poor. And so what he's talking about, this treatment that he's talking about has to do with that. Number three. There are four commands in the text. The first two are positive and the last two are negative. The first two deal with what we are to do. The last two deal with what we are to stop doing. And then number four, there are four vivid illustrations in this passage that we'll look at in a moment. Now, specific explanations. How do you do right when you've been done wrong? Some specific explanations of how. Number one, he says in verse 7 to be patient. When you've been done wrong, be patient. And the word there in verse 7 for patient is a combination of two words. One of them means in the Greek distant or long and the other is the word thumos which means passion or heat. So when you put those two words together that's translated in the English patient, they are long-tempered, long-fused. Now we have in our uh, vernacular the term short-tempered and short-fused. When you've been done wrong, he says, have a long temper, take a long view of it, and have a long fuse. I like, I, I'm impressed with this word, patient. I want to show you how it's used in one place. I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and look at verse 4. It struck me just the other day in looking at the word patient that it is the first description of Christian love. It is the first description of Christian love. Now in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, 
when he begins to describe what Christian love is, the first word he uses is patience. Um, Friday I had to go out and do a, uh, do a, that's a Freudian slip. I had to go out and do a wedding out, out in Tulia, Texas. And uh, while I was out there, I got this phone call from this guy. He said, if you have time, I want you to come by and see me. His name is Frank Kiker. Frank is 44 years old, and he, he uh, came down a few years ago with uh, multiple sclerosis. Um, Frank was um, an unbeliever when I was in Tulia. He, uh, uh, he was of a Methodist background, but an unbeliever. And he had just come down with multiple sclerosis while I was there as pastor in Tulia. And he came to church occasionally, but he was a bitter, bitter man. I went to his house, and he told me this story. He said, you know, back in March 1975, I think he told me, as after I left there, he said, I, uh, I really got sick. I really got sick, and I was uh, about to die. My mother died on March the 9th, and I buried her March the 11th. On March the 12th, I checked myself in to a nursing home. On March the 13th, my wife served me divorce papers. And four days later, my father died. And he said, you, you think that I didn't feel like the whole world came tumbling in on me. And he said, last year, I was uh, at the point of death, and I was in the hospital in Amarillo, Texas. And just to make you a quick story, he said, I came to the Lord, and I'm happier than I've ever been in my lifetime. He said, I feel better than I've ever felt. He said, you can look in my face. I'm a happy man. He said, I've, I've, I've completely, I was bitter and resentful, resentful of my wife who just walked out and left me under, that, under those circumstances, etc." And he said, I've got peace with God, and I've got peace with myself, and I'm a happy man. He said, would you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? He said, I want you to do something for me. And so I got his Bible, and I turned over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and he said, would you begin reading at verse 4? It, I'd already had this sermon ready by then, but he said, now, when you, when you read 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 4, he said, would you read it out loud for me? He said, and would in the place of love, I want you to do that right now. He said, in the place of love, he said, just substitute your name. And so I started reading. Gerald is patient. Gerald is kind. Gerald is not jealous. Gerald does not brag, and he is not arrogant. Gerald does not act unbecomingly. Gerald does not seek his own way. And I began to read there. And I got halfway down there, and I just kind of quit, you know. And he said, you know, everybody that comes in this room and starts reading, he'll quit halfway through. And he said, I don't know whether it's because you can't take it or not, but he says, you know, it's kind of interesting. Everybody I've asked to read that quits halfway through. Now, now, you may feel like you have Christian love. And you may, be, you may feel like that you're expressing the Christian faith. But you haven't gotten past the first, first word until you have patience when you've been done wrong.
That's impressive to me. And the second thing about this word that impresses me is that when you read in the New Testament, you, you find that there is this principle ingrained that in order to grow and to learn, you must have patience in trials. It is impossible for one to learn without patience, without being patient. A man and his daughter were walking one day out in the woods and they saw a cocoon hanging from the branch of a tree. And this cocoon was in the process of, of breaking and inside, encased in the cocoon, was a butterfly seeking freedom. And it was in the process of breaking open to release that butterfly. And the man said, just a minute, look at this. And he went over and he cracked open the cocoon and, and, and peeled it apart and the butterfly died. You cannot hurry God's plan and part of the plan of God involves the maturing and the growing and the releasing that comes through struggling. So that as God has planned it for us, He may have planned that in our process of becoming that thing that God has ultimately designed for us, He has the process of struggling and tension and 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 uh, suffering that cannot be hurried. Be patient. Now, suppose that you are patient and you're making it fine and you're patient. The next tendency, if you are being patient, is to get discouraged. And so he deals with it in verse 8. The second step in how to, be, to do right when you've been done wrong is this to strengthen your heart in the Lord. Verse 8, strengthen your hearts. Now, that word strengthen is an interesting word also. It means to prop up. It means to support something that is heavy. And so really the idea here is just to lean on God. Now, that's a kind of a cliche that we always use, you know, just lean on the Lord. I like, Proverbs, I like Psalm 55, 22 especially. It says this, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. And that word means He will hold you up. He will prop you up. I was out sharing my faith this week and I shared with this man just a simple man, not, a, not an educated man at all. And I talked to him about how you, trust your, you trustfully surrender your life to Jesus Christ for salvation. And I got down to the point of asking him, was he ready to make that step of com commitment and salvation, for salvation? And he said he was. And I said, well, now, do you understand what I've just said? Can you tell back to me can you say back to me what you think it means to trust Jesus for salvation he said well I think it must mean that you just put your soul in God's hands you know I don't I guess as long as I live and as as long as I testify 
As long as I talk to people about being saved, I'm going to use that from now on. It seems to me that the thing that sustains a man is just to trust it all to God's hands. Now, suppose you're being done wrong tonight by somebody. The only prop you have, the only one who's going to be able to sustain you is the hand of God. But now let's suppose that you're being patient and you've tried to, you've tried to put it all in God's hands or to lean on Him. What's the next step? The next step is, is the tendency to hold a grudge and complain about a person. Would you look at the next verse? Do not complain, brethren, against one another. Now, it's interesting when you, when you begin to study the word patient in the New Testament, there are two different words. One of them has to do with being patient in the, in the midst of trying circumstances, and the other is being patient in the midst of trying people. One of them has to do with problem circumstances, and the other has to do with obnoxious people. Now, the word patient that he's using here has to do with people. Now, watch this. If you've been done wrong, if you're being done wrong, there is this tendency. Now, it's also interesting to note that he's saying stop complaining about people as to suggest that the process was going on with these people in this epistle. For the natural reaction is to complain about what somebody's doing to you. You get this person in your mind and you become obsessed with that person and he is all or she is all you can think about. And you complain about that person. Stop complaining about him, her. Do you want an opportunity to witness every time you are gracious to an unkind act, you are bearing one of the greatest witnesses that can be born? You've heard that old story about what happened in the army barracks. One of the men there just hated the guy in the next bunk down the way. And one night he took his army boots and just hurled them at him in the bunk. The man didn't say a word. The next morning, the man who had thrown the army boots found his boots under his bunk, polished with a spit shine. Every time you respond graciously to an unkind act, you bear witness to the dynamic of the Christian faith. Number four. It's found in verse 12. Look at this. Now, I need, we need to do a, little, do a little work with verse 12. You've got to hang in here because you can't get it by osmosis. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Now, in the broad sense, that means profanity. Now, I know sometimes it gets so bad you just like to cuss, I'm, I'm sure. 
and you may have. Uh, you, you would like, uh, maybe, you would like to just cuss somebody out. Wouldn't that, that might just feel so good. Somebody does you dirty, you just like a, that in a broad sense, that may be what this means. But now watch this. The word means to grasp something sacred firmly to support what you're saying or doing. Like in a courtroom, let, let me illustrate it like this. Suppose I'm making a statement or I'm telling something and somebody walks by who can validate or verify what I've said and I reach out and grab them by the arm. I say, come here just a minute. I want you to verify what I've just said. I want you to, I want you to testify that, 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 to the truth of what I've just said. Now in a courtroom, that's what we do. We call God down to say, now what I'm saying is the truth, and God is here to verify what I'm saying. We swear by oath. And when you, when you, when you study that word and you exegete it, it, what he's saying literally is this. Don't appear super spiritual when you're being done wrong. And that's why he refers to Job in verse 11. Look at that. He says, You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now, now this is what he means. You think you have trouble. You just look at Job. You think you've been done wrong. Look at what that man endured. One step further. You, you think you're somebody special. You're super spiritual because you're enduring the suffering that is coming your way. You're not spiritual at all. You haven't suffered anything yet. Look at Job. And he kind of brings us down to earth. Now, some applications, four of them. I want you to get these down, and then we're through. I don't know how many sermons you've heard in your lifetime on how to do it, but, man, I love to have somebody stand up and say, you know, not, not tell me what I've been doing wrong, but tell me how I can get over it. I'm going to tell you. Number one. Don't focus on the situation or you will be angry. Don't focus on the situation or you will be angry. If all you concentrate on is what somebody's doing to you that's wrong, you know what that does to you? It just lights the fuse and sets the pot to boiling. Two, don't focus on self or you will be filled with self-pity. Don't focus on self or you will be filled with self-pity. Now, who do you focus on? Well, you focus on the Lord, that, that, that second point. You, you, you trust in the Lord, lean on Him, but you also focus on somebody else who has things worse than you. Look at Job, for example. And you think it's been tough for you, 
you, you know how to get over that? Begin to feel the suffering of somebody who's having it worse than you're having it. And focus on them. Number three. Don't focus on someone else to blame or you'll complain. Don't focus on someone else to blame or you'll complain. Finally, don't focus on the present. Look to the future. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not to live in the present. I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you what that means. You remember those verses that I've said there, that I read there about the Lord is at hand, the Lord is at the door? Don't focus on the suffering of the present, on the wrong of the present. Focus on the right of the future. The Lord is near at hand. And when He comes through the door, all of the injustice, all of the inequity of life will be resolved. Focus on the future. It's not always going to be like it is now. That's how you do right when you've been done wrong. That's how you go beyond the ordinary human reaction. Would you bow your heads with me? We'll give an opportunity tonight for response to our invitation. The invitations will be three. The first invitation will be to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. To become a Christian, a child of God, to be saved, forgiven of sin. Jesus invites you to come to Him. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice, if anyone hears my voice, will open the door, I will come in and dine with Him. Would you open up your life tonight to Jesus Christ? The way you invite Him into your heart and life is by prayer. You invite Him like this, Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. I invite you into my life. Second invitation is for believers to come forward, perhaps confessing sin, rededication of life, placing on God's altar in repentance that which has not been pleasing to Him, bringing Him favor. The last invitation is for believers who need to transfer membership or join, or join the church by statement or by transfer of membership. After I've led us in prayer, Jim will lead us in a song. We'll recognize it. We don't need to turn in the book. We'll sing two stanzas. So if you're coming, you come now. Father, when Jesus died on the cross, he was being done wrong unto by evil men. And he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he went beyond the normal human reaction. And he did not focus on the person to complain. He did not resent, retaliate, seek revenge. 
And that love He manifested is the love you have asked us to manifest. First step, the first requirement is patience. Help us now, Father, to admit, to confess to Thee our failure. And help us now, Father, to make commitment of life, rededication of life, membership transfer, to come trusting Jesus Christ as personal Savior because that's the supernatural plan of God. I pray for it, Father, now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.